Dr. Justin Moore is a professor of neurosurgery at the Harvard Medical School in the United States. Dr. Moore is a 2006 Sir John Monash Foundation Scholar, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome him to the program. Justin, welcome to the Scholars. Thanks very much. Looking forward to chatting with you. So how long have you been working in the United States? So I moved to the United States around the end of 2015. Uh, so I had finished my uh, specialty training in, the, in Australia. And so I came over, I did a couple of fellowships and mm -hmm. then got a job uh, over in, um, in California at Stanford and was there briefly before I got recruited back to Boston where I'd done one of my fellowships previously. Uh, to be a full-time attending here, which for for people in Australia is basically a consultant, uh, which is a sort of you know an independent position. Okay, so you you are you are living and working in Boston. That's right. So basically, the the sort of big pull to coming over to the states was was a couple of fold. Uh, first was uh, clinically, I'm a what they call an endovascular as well as a open surgeon, which means, mm -hmm. you know, open surgery is the sort of stuff most people think about where we, you know, make a cut, we take out some bone that gets access to the brain, we take out tumors, you know, we do those awake craniotomies that I'm sure some of your uh, listeners have probably seen on the news before where we have people talking mm -hmm. as we're doing surgery. Uh, the, the other half of it, the endovascular is actually a very minimally invasive technique where we go through the arteries and we usually do that to get access to aneurysms, which are blisters on the brain, which can cause devastating uh, side effects if they bleed, including a one third uh, mortality rate. And so mm. this is a new way of doing it. And uh, in Australia, the they were sort of at the start of that. So we were sort of looking for people to get skilled up before coming back. So that's one of the reasons why I came to, to the States because I did my uh, training in that at Harvard here in Boston and they were one of the top you know programs in the world to do this. So I, I learned a lot of, of techniques in the endovascular field over here. And so that was a major motivation. How long do some of those surgeries take, Doctor? So uh, I'll tell you, I'm a skull-based specialist. So the other subspecialty training I, I did was in skull base and radio surgery. And skull base uh, surgery is sort of known as the sort of longest, most difficult cases in sort of neurosurgery. And those cases can take in excess of 14 hours. Um, so they're very long cases. The endovascular wow. cases we can usually get done in sort of two or three hours. So mm -hmm. they're a bit quicker, but it's, it's a long haul. When you're having a surgery or conducting a surgery for that length of time, how do you stay focused and alert? So I would say, you know, for me personally, uh, it's one of those things that I don't know if you've read the book Flow, but basically when I, I get not. into it, so it, it's basically it's a basically a book that that looked into like masters in their field, you know, surgeons. Um, pianists, concert, you know, pianists, that's those sort of people. And it's a, it's a, a sort of phenomena where if you're really good and really into your work, you sort of lose time in it. And, you know, that's what happens. It's sort of like you start at 7.30 and you, and you go and then you sort of look, you say, oh, it seems to be, you know, I've made good progress. I better check the time. And it's sort of like, you know, 6 o'clock at night. So the time sort of just flies <laughs> by. <laughs> that's right. No. 
the only the only trick there is you know sometimes we can be working you know for for so long that there, there is like a, a slightly increased risk of developing kidney stones and things like this from dehydration mm. so you know you prepare your your nurse team to have have a have a, a closed container with a drink in it and they can just put a straw through your mask and you can take water as you go so it's a bit like really? doing a marathon i suppose it's <laughs> yeah. like a red bull or a gatorade or something <laughs> but, uh, well red bull you don't want the caffeine because it can give you a tremor but uh, it's definitely it's like Gatorade. <laughs> wow. Are you allowed to take a break during surgery? Like sit down and just sort of collect your thoughts for like five or 10 minutes or that's it? Once once you're on, you're on. You can, depending on like the stage and, you know, obviously sometimes there are, but there are periods where like everything's very stable and you can take a, a, a brief break. And, you know, at least my practice, I have a number of fellows uh, who are mm-hmm. trained neurosurgeons that come, you know, to get that subspecialty training. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you can take a break while they sort of keep an eye on things and make sure nothing happens. You know, we can do a swap. So we do that sometimes. Yeah, okay. So, you know, I'll yeah. give him 15 minutes and then he'll give me 15 minutes. I want you to think back to when you did your first ever surgery, whenever that might have been. Uh, were you not nervous or were you calm? Um, so I would say I'm calm. I have a, a very sort of calm disposition in general uh you know one of those factors that actually a lot of my residents and fellows tell me you know they haven't met a surgeon as calm so i've never been too worried about it um i have to say i really did like uh, the anatomy dissections when we worked on cadavers so i felt that i did a lot of that work and i also did a um a graduate diploma in surgical anatomy at, at Melbourne University back in the day. So I'd done a lot of dissection before, you know, I uh, I had to had to do my own surgery. And so I felt pretty confident with that. Um, I would say, though, that it's always a little bit nerve-wracking the first time you, you, you know, put a cut in someone's skin. You know, you, you need a lot of confidence mm. to do that, given that, you know, the person is otherwise, you know, appears to be intact and, and you're doing this to them. So it's a, it's a big step, but I felt that I had like, you know, a lot of ground, I'd done a lot of groundwork before I did it. So who were some of the patients, not their names, but um, the conditions that some of your patients have when they come to see you and, and obviously how do you help uh, operate on them? Yeah, so um, today, these days, I see a lot of patients. There's really two broad sets. There's the tumor patients. So some of them have, you know, pretty bad tumors, uh, and some of them have very large tumors. Um, and so they come to have those out, and they come with a variety of side effects. Could be, uh, you know, hearing loss, or they're going weak, or they've had a seizure, or they're confused. So they're all the sort of presentations that I see. Um, some are lucky and they get sort of caught on investigation for other things. And so we can get, get, get the tumors out before they become symptomatic. Uh, most of those patients do very well. Um, the other set are the endovascular patients. And they're sort of, there's two types of those sort of patients. They're the ones that we see electively, which means we've caught an aneurysm and it hasn't ruptured. And those patients usually have stellar outcomes. We can usually treat their aneurysms and they're out the next day. But the other half of the, the patients that come in when something's already gone wrong, and for an aneurysm, that's a rupture. So they come in, at, you know, often in pretty poor shape. Uh, and we, you know, we were sort of working hard to get help them survive it. Uh, and then we also have strokes. So I do a lot of stroke work as well. And and that involves, you know, you know we all, all 
sort of have this image of a person with a stroke going weak down one side and getting rushed to the hospital. But what we can do now, and it's a thing that's only been around for the last sort of four or five years, uh, is called a thrombectomy, which is where we go up by that minimally invasive route and we actually get the clot and we pull it out and we restore the circulation. And so I do a lot of that as well. It's quite miraculous. Those patients literally could be paralyzed and then, you know, an hour after the case, they're back. They're, you know, without a deficit. So it, it, it's a pretty, it's a bit of a miracle sort of procedure uh, when, when it works mm. and, when, and when you're able to have it. So that's the, sort of, that's the sort of patients I see. So some of them are acute and some of them are coming in with a specific problem. How do you learn how to do all of that? Apart from so, years of study and practice and training. <laughs> yeah, that's that's basically what it comes down to. So, you know, it's been one of those, I was sort of thinking about it the other day, and I think I've been in, in some sort of school or training program since I was two years old. So it's sort of one of those things that you're just piling things up and it's the neurosurgery training program is, is six years. And then uh, you've already done medical school on top of that. And you've also also done your intern mm. and... Uh, and your uh, basic surgical training, which, you know, you're a doctor for all those things. So you're often a doctor for more than 10 years before you actually get out as a, you know, undifferentiated neurosurgeon. And then uh, then I did multiple years of uh, subspecialty training to be able to do do the extra things. And so it's, it's, it's a long pathway. And what was it, um, Justin, that made you first think about neurosurgery as a, as a specialty? You know, I, I would say it's a, it's interesting because I wouldn't say I'm the typical sort of doc. You know, a lot of a lot of the, my colleagues and people that I know, they had doctors in their family. They went into medicine, you know, with 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 those sort of you know preconceived ideas. I, I was someone that sort of I, I, I sort of you know evolved into it. Um, so you know, going into medicine, I really only started thinking about that seriously when you know in year ten I did a. a you know, what you should do sort of work survey, you know, did that sort of analysis, ask you a bunch of questions mm-hmm. and then say, these are jobs that would be good for you. And one of them that came out was a, it was <laughs> yes. a, a doctor. <laughs> so I get a doctor and a, and a astrophysicist. And at, at the time I was like, well, they're pretty weird ones because, you know, there was a lot of other jobs in that, in that booklet, but maybe I should look into these. So it was a rocket and, you know, scientist or a on. brain surgeon. That's, that's that's what it came down to, I suppose. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but yeah. And so, um, and so I was, you know, looked into medicine. I hadn't had any, anybody in my family in medicine. We actually, at my school, we'd never actually had anyone go to medicine from my school. So it was one of those things that was taking a bit of a leap of faith. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I did that. And, uh, and then in, medical school, I really clicked with the neuroscience, you know, sort of subjects that we were doing. So I loved neuroanatomy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, was, I, was, I really, you know, was, was into that. And then I also really loved the neurophysiology. And, and at that time, it was like, oh, what, you know, what can I do more of as, as you know, as I go through? And it, it slowly became a decision between a neurologist or a, or a neurosurgeon. And uh, I was more of a hands-on guy. I always like to build things and, and do things mm-hmm. with my hands, build a lot of models and that sort of stuff. And uh, so, you know, got to talking to some of the neurosurgery trainees. My, dem- you know, my demonstrator at the time was very keen on getting onto that program. And, you know, that's how it sort of evolved. I'm not sure what, um, I think I know the answer to this, but, you know, if I watch some of those medical shows on TV and I see an operating room and a surgery, I'm instantly... Uh, turned off. I can't watch. My wife is the opposite. She will love it. 
Um, so I imagine you're, you're quite okay with all of that, given it's your job. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, you know, it's early in medical school, you know, you always get a few people that faint and you sort of understand that they're probably going to yes. be the psychiatrists <laughs> in, in, in the, in the, in the <laughs> class, <laughs> but that never bothered me at all. You know, I actually didn't mind the smell of formaldehyde as you go into the cadaver labs because I knew I was going to be dissecting and that was going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and, and interesting and that's the same you know it's sort of when I you know there's a certain smell to the OR um, and you know I always feel at home when I it's a bit like being in an airport you can be in an airport in any country in the world and it's got that sort of airport feeling about it um, you know the OR is the same so you know, being, you're right being, being in Australia the UK or you know America it's got that feel to it which is, is you know very comforting to me <laughs> Is it like being when you're a pilot, you can only do so many hours before you've got to take a mandatory break? Is that is that the same with uh, with surgery? Look, I mean, sort of. <laughs> so with uh, trainees, and this wasn't the case when I was a trainee, but now there is limits on uh, on work hours for trainees, but they haven't extended mm -hmm. that necessarily to attendings. Um, and so it's one of those things that we can end up doing a lot of you know a lot of hours in a row. But because we usually have residents and fellows, you know, and, and there's usually a group of us, we practice generally with a few partners, we sort of, we can sort of break it up that way. So even though I would say there's no hard and fast rule, we sort of regulate ourselves. And if we're, you know, if we've had a really busy night, um, you know, p potentially we'd get one of our partners to cover us the next day if necessary. Mm -hmm. Although I would say it's probably more common that we just work through it and then, you know, you go through the next day and then at the end of that day, you call it quits. So I've certainly done, you know, yeah. my share of sort of 36 hour um, stints. Have you ever had examples where going into a surgery, you've probably thought that chances of success were minimal and after the surgery, you were surprised on the upside that the result was far better than you had thought of and beat your expectations and that patient has now gone on to you know live it live a great life uh yeah definitely actually and i would say that this is something that's sort of being sort of becoming a bit more um common in especially in our traumas often you know people can come in after a, a major motor vehicle accident or you know a, a major fall or an assault or something like that and, you know, they can look pretty, pretty devastated. Uh, however, you know, I've got many examples where we've done surgery and, you know, they may not pick up initially, but, you know, you see them back a few months later in the outpatients clinic and they're back at work. So, you know, there's something, you know, mm. it's, a, it, it's definitely examples of surprising. And the issue with that is, you know, sometimes you have to battle the sort of nihilistic, uh, you know, those nihilistic feelings that come up about uh, patients that are in a very poor condition, you know, to, to battle through that for a few days and give them a chance. And, and same, you know, can, talking to families and other physicians about, you know, you know, holding the course and, and, and seeing if the tide turns. Um, so that's a, that's de that definitely happens. One of the more recent sort of fascinating things that is coming out is in the neuro rehab literature, it's sort of showing that even minimally conscious patients that may have been in a coma for four to six weeks, there's a decent portion of them, if they're still alive when they discharge, uh, they can actually make, you know, good recoveries over a number of months. So, you know, it, it's definitely, I've, I've definitely been surprised. So, which is always nice. 
You mentioned um, going to school. Where where did you grow up and go to school? Um, so I was a Western suburbs kid in uh, Melbourne, and I went out to school. So I went to the local primary school in the in a in a tiny suburb called Kielba, which is sandwiched between Keelor and St Albans in Melbourne. And I went out to a mm-hmm. high school uh, in Sunbury. Uh, don't ask me why I ended up going out there, but uh, I, I ended up out there and we used to take the train out there every day. It yeah. was a <laughs> different experience. Um, and we were sort of from a, a fairly standard, you know, I'd say middle class sort of background. We did the, you know, had the yearly holiday to the same place every year. Um, my, my folks were teachers. And so, you know, education was a, you know, was a, was a priority. And so when you finished year 12, presumably you had good marks, good grades, and you thought, right, okay, well, let's, um, let's give medicine a go. Where did you, where did you first study straight out of school? So, yeah, when I finished, I, you know, I did, I did do well, which was, a you know, I was our, our valid Victorian or, or ducks, um, which was, you know, which was pretty big, which was pretty big because it was one of those things that our school had never had anyone in medicine. So it was sort of a, a, yes. a, a big decision to sort of, you know, plug along and, and see if, you know, if I could get in from, 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 from school and it worked out and I chose uh, to go to Monash. Um, and there was a few reasons for that. Uh, but the, the main one was, you know, I'd, I'd done the tours on the open days and I really mm-hmm. liked Monash had a, at the time, it was the sort of new approach that's now pretty much the, the sort of standard approach, which was very um, systems based and uh, integrated with like problem uh, based learning, uh, which, you know, became, became big buzzwords later on. And, and, and now it's pretty much integrated in all the, all the, you know, medical schools, but they were what they were one of the very early adopters in Australia. And so I really liked that. It made more sense for me. Some of the other, you know, places at the time were still doing things like physics and organic chemistry uh, as, as separate subjects and didn't sort of make much sense to me that you wouldn't integrate them into what you're actually going to be doing, which is healthcare. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, so that was the primary reason there. And um, that worked very well. The, the other reason why is that Monash also gave the opportunity to, um, to, to pursue a law degree if, if you wanted to. And, um, uh, you know, that was something that I eventually, um, well, you had to apply for it, of course, and all, all those sort of things. Yes. But, you know, it, it, was, it, was an, it was an option. Uh, and I was interested in the law at the time. Again, we hadn't had any, I hadn't had any lawyers in the family. So it was sort of like an area that I was interested to get to know. Maybe I'd want to work in that area. Uh, options, you could combine medicine and law and do something like a, a coroner or there, there was those sort of things. And so that was another option to, to yeah. do that. So. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much why I, I did that. So, so your first degree at Monash, was that a, was that a double degree? Was it? So what ended up happening is I got, uh, I got my MD there and I started also mm. doing a law degree there and I got my, so I got my law degree and my MD degree. And I also did a, I did a, a bachelor's of science there too. So my first degree was, the first thing that I actually got was Stop the science it. degree, <laughs> and then it was an, and then it was my MD, yeah. and then a bit later was my law degree. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was, dear it was a dear. lot of work, and then it was, it was a, it was a, you know, good reward at the end of all that. 
I bet. So how long did um, how long were you at Monash for to to do all of that? Uh, I think I was there on around eight years in the end. So yeah, okay. Which was which was pretty, which was on the speedy side. <laughs> uh, on the speedy that was, side. That was fine. And so how did the um, Justin? How did the scholarship come about? The John Monash Foundation scholarship. Tell us about that. So I got very interested in um, genetics. And so one of the things I was very interested in was neurogenetics, neurogenomics, which, you know, was especially the neurogenomics was a new field that was developing and I could tell it was going to be, you know, a major, major field. And so I started looking at, you know, you know, how I could get involved with that to a greater degree. I always had a very uh, heavy research bend. So with the science, the, the science degree, mm-hmm. I'd done my honors and I'd done it in Parkinson's disease with a neurologist at the Howard Florey Institute. And so I was, I was very interested in, in pursuing, you know, something in genomics, you know, something in neuro and, and something that was going to be high impact. And they suggested I sort of look to do a PhD and they sort of mentioned a few places that were, you know, they thought were world class. And one of them was the uh, genomics unit at Oxford. Uh, another one actually was uh, Harvard um, here uh, with the Broad, which is sort of, it's funny because now, you know, I have a I work with the Broad and and, and doing that. And that they also mm. uh, mentioned a couple places, you know, locally, um, if, uh, you know, if, if given that going international was, you know, a fairly, you know, heavy lift so i thought well you know i should uh, whenever i ask for advice i always like to take it uh, if you're not going to take advice then you shouldn't shouldn't ask for it and so i started looking into these and i yeah. sort of selected that the 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 best the best place would probably be the genomics unit at oxford uh but you know that was super yes. expensive um <laughs> and it's not something that i could afford uh to do unless i yes. had uh the scholarship basically the the other thing too is they're they're pretty selective and one of the things that often doesn't get talked about is the, the getting a scholarship is also, you know, that helps with the selection because they, they, they trust, you know, especially like, you know, an organization like the Monash scholars, like they've done the screening for you, right? Like it's a big boost. Yeah, it's like yeah. there's, there's a couple of those programs around that, you know, is really quality stamp. And so it helps you in two ways. It gets you the money that you need, but it also gets you the the, the sort of opportunity to, uh, to, 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 mm. to sort of get there. And so that, that was, you know, you know, the John Monash had an excellent reputation. And so I, that's, that's why I applied for it. And uh, very surprising to me, they, uh, they, they came, th- they, they came through and gave it to me, which was, uh, which was great. Uh, and, you know, then it was off to the races. Off to England. What was it like um, studying over there at Oxford? So it was it was fantastic, uh, you know. It was it was tough as well, but it was fantastic. So it was it was, it was you know overall it was a it was a, it, you know, excellent experience. But you know it's it's a big deal, and I wouldn't you know in, in, anyone that's da- done this sort of you know international move knows that it's not something that's you know you just do. It's not like a holiday. So it was pretty intimidating. You know, I picked up all my stuff, which was basically you know a suitcase and a half. <laughs> I had very little stuff at that mm. point. And, you know, shipped over and I remember thinking like, you know, how am I going to, uh, you know, pay for things and, you know, I'm going to need to set up a bank account and all these sort of things. And, you know, I think Life I got admin. down to my, yeah. that's right. 
And I think I got down to my last like five quid there before like, you know, the account clicked in and, you know, I got a transfer of money and those things. So it was a little bit hairy to start with. But once once it got going, it was great. And I, I really sort of took the opportunity not just to do a lot of, you know, academic work, which, you know, the, the lab is you spend a, like at least I spent a lot of time in the lab. You know, you, you easily mm. work, you know, to three or four in the morning, you know, multiple days a week. But it was, you know, you always felt you're on the cusp of something. So there was a lot of motivation there. Uh, but also I had multiple jobs there. I, was, I got a lectureship position there at Oxford. So I was teaching the medical students there, which was which was great. Uh, I got what, some what, were you, what were you teaching them? So, so I, I've done a lot of teaching. Even when I was a medical student, I was teaching the the science, and they had behavioral psychology students. So I, I taught them when I was a medical student. When I was doing my, you know, honors year, my thesis year, uh, and so you know, and then I, then I'd gone on and at, uh, as an at, as an intern at Saint V's, I was teaching the Melbourne medical students there. And so when I went to, to Oxford, um, they, they were interested in, in having um, lecturers uh, teach anatomy, particularly surgical anatomy, which, you know, that was just up my mm. alley. And so that's what I was teaching primarily there. I also did, they have a very interesting system there that, you know, is one of the reasons why they're, you know, the institution that they are, which is where we have these small, uh, like tiny classes, we call them tutorials, but essentially it's like you and two students. And, you know, and you could be me, but it's also like the professor, that's it. you know, we take it in turns. That's it. So you get this one-on-one -on -one with these very um, high, high caliber individuals, um, you know, so it gives it, you know, it's very expensive system, which was the, the downside because you're pulling out, you know, professor uh, for, yeah. you know, that amount of time. Mm. But, you know, for, for undergrads and graduate students, I mean, you know, the experience is fantastic because you're talking to the expert and you're not with like 120 other people in an auditorium. So, you know, that was, that was, that was pretty, that was pretty cool. I mean, we did do some of the anatomy teaching was done with bigger classes and then we'd go and do dissections and stuff like that. But I also did the, the smaller tutorials, which was, which was a lot of fun. And I was also a junior dean there, uh, which meant uh, basically I worked with the dean and I was sort of in charge. I was in charge of the undergraduates and graduates at the college. So just to provide a little bit of background, like Oxford's basically made up of, you know, a couple dozen colleges and, and you know, every mm. graduate student, faculty that, and, and undergrad is a member of one or other of the colleges. And so, uh, and so the, the junior dean works with the dean to help, you know, monitor that and basically, you know, keep, keep the college, you know, sort of running. It's more of a sort of academic uh, on the academic side of things, but yeah, that was that was fun too because I got a lot of interactions with the undergrads and the other graduate students. That was fun. And so, once you finished at Oxford, did you go back to Australia, or what? What, what happened then? So I did. So I had. So while I was at Oxford, you know, we have a very competitive. Um, uh, application program to get onto the to neurosurgery so while i was there i applied and uh you know luckily uh they they accepted me <laughs> and so i got onto mm. the program so basically i knew they knew that when i was you know scheduled to finish so i would finish in the december and i would start on the program in the january and uh and so that's basically what happened um in in the interim, while I was at Oxford, I actually met my my wife, who was who was in doing her master's. She's from the states. She was doing her master's Fantastic. in the yep. same lab. That's right. <laughs> so 
and we, we sort of had this dilemma because she had actually started her PhD here in Boston at Harvard. And uh, the question is like, you know, what are we going to do? And uh, luckily she decided that, you know, she's, she's, she has a lot of initiative. She sort of got in contact with Melbourne Uni and she sort of arranged to have, you know, do the second half of her PhD, uh, like co-supervised at Melbourne Uni. So we actually both mm-hmm. moved back to Oz um, and uh, I started the training program and she uh, kept going on her PhD now in, now in Melbourne. Terrific. And then um, fast forward, uh, what was it to um, 2015, 2016, you ended up in the United States? That's right. So, you know, I'd had a look around and obviously when I was at Oxford, you know, it's funny when you're at Oxford, like the sort of institution you hear most about is Harvard. And when you're at Harvard, the institution you hear most about is Oxford. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it was one I'd heard a lot about. You've experienced both. That's right. So, you know, having having a look around, you know, we already had, we'd been, because my wife had lived here for a little while when she was doing her PhD and, um, you know, I'd, I'd come here before, you know, it's one of those things that the, the States is a huge place and, you know, you've got to find the, the areas that you'd be comfortable to live in and you feel you'd be happy at. And so we decided we would, we like the coasts, which, which a lot of people do. So, um, and, and, you know, because of the subspecialty training that I wanted to do, there's only a few, there's only a few units in the world that were doing the sort of volume and the cases that, that I was interested in, in having the exposure to. Mm-hmm. And so one of them was here in, in Boston, um, at, at Harvard, uh, and the, the hospital was BI, uh, Mass General. And so I did that. And then when we finished that, we'd already had it scheduled to, um, to do a second fellowship in skull base, which was they're the long surgeries. And we had that at Stanford. So we, we all hopped up, um, off to we, California, we, mm. off to California. I should say we did have a baby in the, in the interim while we were here the first time. <laughs> oh, so, in the interim. <laughs> don't leave the baby out. <laughs> no. So the, we, so, you know, we had to, we, it was a, cross continent with a baby <laughs> uh, and to, to, to settle in um, California and, you know, California, there was great Palo Alto is, you know, it's got weather very much like Melbourne, to be honest. Um, and it's also got, a, you know, lots of gum trees. It's very uh, sort of Australian vibe to it. So that was nice. So we lived there for a few years and uh, you know, I finished the training there and I think, you know, my first academic position there. And then the, um, they got the guys back here recruited me back. So, uh, we did another um, cross-country trip uh, and landed back in Boston, uh, which is where we've been since. Uh, and we've had a, another another um, above um, a couple of years ago. So now we've got two of them, both part two, in Boston. The sequel. Part two. Yes. That's right. <laughs> Terrific. And as an Australian doctor working in the American health system, are you able to provide any observations on the differences between say, the American health system and the Australian health system? Yeah, no, it's a very interesting, there's a, it's a very interesting juxtaposition, the two. And then you, I also often add the UK because I was quite familiar with the, um, um, with the, with the, the public system there uh, when I was living over there. And so, you know, we, I would say like the, uh, the, the, the UK system, the NHS is, is like, you know, super public system. Then you have the US, which is like 
pretty much a private system. And then, you know, Australia sort of sits in the middle with, you know, a decent public system, but also, you know, a decent amount of private, you know, hospitals around as well. And they all do function very, very differently. Uh, and some, some of the differences are in terms of, you know, volume, like I would say in Australia, uh, where we're sort of less we're less concerned about other hospitals here. Um, healthcare definitely has a business bend. And so, you know, the volume mm. of patients, you know, and the, and the sort of business metrics are a lot more um, sort of relevant and discussed. Like I have to say when I was, you know, when I, when I'm practicing in Australia, no one really wants to discuss any of those things to much, much of a degree. It's all quite polite. Uh, but... We need some more patients. <laughs> we need some more casualties. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, no one no one talks about that. Whereas here, the difference is it's like, well, you know, there's like six hospitals in this, this you know, radius. And we want to get, you know, the, 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 the greatest amount of patients that we possibly can out of those six hospitals. So there's definitely more of a competitive flavor to it, I would say. Um, there's also mm -hmm. a bit of a difference in the sort of legal uh system you know the states is more litigious uh and so you know i think that has a, a bit of a a, a sort of there's, there's like an undercurrent here that's a bit stronger than in australia although saying that i think you know i think australia still you know definitely uh recognizes the the, the legal system in the background there um and I would also say like the programs run quite differently. So in Australia, you know, we have a lot, you know, especially in neurosurgery, we have one central um, program. So, you know, you've got to get on. Like, so everybody in, in Australasia, so Australia, New Zealand, we all apply to the one program. And if you don't get on that program, well, you just have to wait till next year. You just have to keep waiting. And if your spot, does, you know, there's never a spot for you, then you've got to go and do something else. It, it, it and similarly if you leave or you know it, you know something something like that happens well then that that program's done because you would have to you know uh, apply to the same program whereas here you know each while there's an overall accrediting system each uh sort of hospital has its own residency program so you go and get that accredited and then you know you basically mm. interview your all your own residents, and then you decide who you want for your specific hospital. And so you know there's you know basically there's you know about a hundred um, training programs in the states, and we they have this huge match, and we're sort of all um, you know we're all competing, uh, but also all you know reviewing the same sort of candidates. So it's quite different to the to the Australian system. Well. It's been uh, terrific catching up with you today. Dr. Justin Moore joining us from Boston uh, at Harvard uh, University. Thank you so much for your time and we'll be following your career with much interest. It's been a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you for coming on. Uh, thanks very much, it's been a pleasure.